Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. So now to what I expect will be a confronting conversation about one woman's life of turning the other cheek and turning it for quite some time. I expect it will leave you at times amazed, appalled and confounded by the grace of my next guest and ultimately God. Jane Scope had her life turned upside down when she discovered her husband of 30 years had been sexually assaulting their daughter since she was 12. Jane has courageously written about her awful journey, a journey of darkness and pain, so many tears, but also a journey of restoration through God. The book is called Silk Purse. Jane, welcome to Open House. Thank you. It's great for you to join us, and it's a great privilege to meet you. Can we start by asking you why you called your book A Silk Purse? It's called A Silk Purse because when I was just 16 years old, I went to meet with the man who would become my father-in-law. And he came from a quite a conservative background and a culture in which he wanted his son to marry into the same culture. And he said, in my hearing, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. I don't think he intended in the first place to uh, denigrate me in that way, but it fed into everything that had happened to me earlier in my life. Why did he say that, do you think? I think he wanted his son to marry into the same culture that he came from. And I was not a Christian at the time, and I came from a completely different culture. So I think it was just to warn his son. He was only 17 at the time. This is not going to work. It's probably useful for you to background us a bit on what your life had been like. Well, I had emigrated from England when I was 16. And I had come out of a girls' boarding school for five years before that. And prior to going to boarding school, I had lived on an island on the Thames in England and had a wonderful free life in and out of boats, in and out of water, and, uh, and then went to boarding school. So in many ways, very sheltered. And when I came to Australia, um, I was just 16 and very naive. I suppose you look back and think, you don't know what you've got until you've lost it, really. Yes, indeed. Big family, five children, two of whom are adopted. How would you describe your family's life? I found it really idyllic. I mean, we went overseas to live in Fiji for four years and we adopted the two girls from an orphanage there. They're Fiji Indians, lovely girls. And then I had uh, quite quickly had a son. And then when we came back to Australia, two more sons were born. So uh, five children in five years, very busy. Yes, I'm sure. (laughs) Fast forward to that day that you learnt what your husband had been doing. How did that happen? It was just the most horrific thing because I had no idea. No idea whatsoever. No idea whatsoever. I guess there were, looking back now, I can piece together some things that were not quite right, but I had no idea that he had what he called a relationship with our adopted daughter. She had come out of an orphanage. She was um, very protective of her relationship with her father and loved him very much. And and I encouraged that relationship without realising what was happening. It's probably useful to explain how you found out. I found out when um, she left home unexpectedly. 
on a Friday night. She didn't come home from work. And then on the Monday morning, when I hadn't heard from her over the weekend, I was absolutely distraught. We rang her work and and the uh, person who answered the phone said, ring the police station. I immediately thought there must have been an accident. Yes. Um, but it wasn't an accident. Um, I heard those terrible words that I thought I would never hear, except on television, um, what you say may be taken down in evidence against you. And um, I think at that point I just became numb with shock. It was um, it was so unexpected. And I said to my husband, what's going on? And he said, I've had a relationship with our daughter. And uh, I don't think I could even ask him what that meant. I was so paralyzed with apprehension, fear, um, and confusion. So she'd gone to the police? She had gone to work, and through her work they had gone to the police, yes. Yeah. And describe your husband and his response to that. Well, his immediate response was to drop the phone. (laughs) And um, then I think, and the blood drained from his face, Um, And then I think his mind started going at a million miles an hour about how he's going to get out of this situation. And so every conversation I had with him subsequently was totally confusing. There was nothing clear about what he said, and I couldn't work out what he was meaning. My immediate reaction was to say, I'm going to stand by you. I don't understand all this. Um, whatever's happened, I'm sure we can work it out. I think it was a survival protection response. Um, I wanted to keep my family intact no matter what. It's an amazing response if you ask me, and I suspect lots of people listening, that your instinct would be to say, I'll stick by you. Yes, and looking back, I can't understand it myself, except that my first priority in life was to keep my family safe and close. And so I think that was why I responded the way I did. How did it then play out? So it played out then with a visit first to the uh, local minister and then um, to uh, the police came around in the evening and issued an arrest warrant and he had to go to the Um, police station I didn't go with him and then that began a whole series of visits to the police station and to court I'd never been inside a courthouse before but the first time we arrived at court which was about three or four weeks later there was a list on the wall of his charges and there were 42 of them Did they allow contact with your daughter? No. No. She was taken away and put in a so-called safe house at that time, and I didn't see her again for 11 years. And he went to prison? And he went to prison eventually. He tried every way he could to avoid going um, to court, but eventually there was no uh, getting away from it, and he went to trial. He was found guilty and he was he was sentenced and he went to prison. For how long? Mm. Well, he was initially sentenced for 10 years. He then appealed against that. And on a technicality, some of the charges were dropped and his sentence was reduced. He was out on parole after five and a half years. How did you make it through all this? 
to you. <laughs> I look back now and I'm not sure how I made it through, except one of my defense mechanisms was to put my head down and work. And I ran a business from home to give me maximum flexibility. And um, it was a secretarial business to um, help people who didn't have secretaries. And um, so I did a lot of typing, typing of books and things like that. And I worked 18 hours a day, seven days a week. So the only time off I took was to visit him in prison. How often would you visit him in prison? Um, Mostly when he was in Sydney, in close in Sydney, once a week. And then when he was further away, um, once a fortnight. Can you describe to me his demeanour towards you? Right from that first shocking moment and all through the court case and through prison. I think his demeanour towards me was totally self-absorption in his own problems. And so um, I was to him collateral damage and a person who he needed to help him to get through um, the court case. So his response was, uh, I need you to do this, I need you to do that, I need you to help with research, I need you to... um, type things up, everything from his initial story, which was given to the lawyer, right through to all his presentations in court. And you did that? And I did that. I look back, it's so hard to analyse, but I look back and I think at the back of my mind was somehow he's going to realise what he's done and he's going to be repentant and change. But that never happened. Never? Never. Never. He said all the right words, but there was no fruit of what he said. And this was the difficulty, that he never sought restoration. He never sought to put things right. He never sought to explain properly what happened. He didn't take ownership of what happened. And I think that's quite common in this kind of criminal activity, that um, he was uh, described by his psychiatrist as narcissistic, totally self-focused, Anyone who got in his way was um, dismissed and he sought support from people on his own terms. Why didn't you leave him? (laughs) I just had someone who read the book and said, I screamed all the way through, why didn't you leave him? I think because I had become a Christian when I was 16 and it was the most wonderful thing to me. My marriage vow was sacred and I... I guess I believed that I was in there for the to keep the marriage alive as best I could and that we would weather the storm. Um, when I went for counselling, my counsellor pointed out to me that my marriage contract had been broken. My marriage vow had been broken and I was no longer um, married in that sense. And um, that's when I uh, decided to divorce. The Kairos organisation was a very important part of this story for you, wasn't it? Yes, indeed it was. Yes, right from the beginning. um, After seven years of locking myself away and not communicating with anyone, um, I was invited to meet with someone who was involved in the Kairos Outside organisation. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know what they did. But she invited me to a weekend away. To my utter surprise, I met up with other women who also had someone in prison and who had gone through much of what I had gone through too. And that was, it was the beginning of the light to be able to 
communicate with those people to be able to have their support, their love, their unconditional acceptance of my situation. And um, yes, just just amazing the support that I got from them. Yes, Kairos is a Christian prisons ministry. Yes, it has t- uh, three branches, um, Kairos on the inside where they do programs in prison, Kairos on the outside for men and now and also for women and then the TORCH program for juvenile offenders. It's a very, very important work that they do. It is indeed. The men and women who are inside jail, are many of them are completely without hope and can't see any way out. And to bring that spiritual dimension to them that says that God loves you no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, you can come back, you can be forgiven, you can start again. And I think for the women on the, uh, particularly for the women on the outside who feel totally, often totally socially isolated, um, in deep despair, to give them hope and encouragement is, is a great gift. Tell me you screamed out to God. I did scream out to God yeah. all the time, I'm every sure. day. And one day I left, I actually left the family home and just went walking. And I screamed out to God and said, what should I do? Should I go or should I stay? And I felt very strongly that he said to me, through the 23rd Psalm, even though you walk through the shadow of the valley of death, which is what it felt like, Mm. that um, I'm with you. And And he was. And he was. And he said, stay. And for the sake of my children, and because I had nowhere else to go, One of the things that a person committing this sort of crime does is cut you off from all your friends. So I had no one to turn to. I'd been cut off from both my family and my friends. So I had no one to turn to. So it must have made the final decision to divorce a monumental one. Well, I think by that time he'd been in prison for quite some time and I'd become independent and was thinking independently. And uh, how it happened was quite strange in that I went to a website to find out what do you do how do you get a divorce I had no idea and I found what was called a divorce kit and I downloaded it and I filled it out and I took it to the courthouse I had it stamped I paid $27 and that's all I had to do and after all of that sticking with him through it all It was just that comment from the counsellor that turned your mind. I think my mind had already been turned because it was relentless that he wanted to so-called clear his name. And he kept asking me again and again to bring papers into court, which I into the jail, which I knew I couldn't bring in. He was becoming more and more irrational in his behaviour. And I think I was beginning to realise that um, this was not going to work. Do you have contact with him now? No. He's changed his name and gone to live in another state. And your daughter? I have been amazingly reconciled to my daughter. Yeah. And to both daughters. And um, it, we have a wonderful relationship. She lives in another state, but I'm in constant contact with her and our relationship has been fully restored. How did that happen? It's an amazing story. After I'd seen the counsellor, at my very last visit, I said to her, this is our last visit. And she said, is there anything else you want from me? 
And I said, there's only one thing I want, and that is to be reconciled to my daughter. And she said, you might just have to accept that that's not going to be possible. You haven't seen her for 11 years, and um, and she's had to make another life, and probably you're not in it. And so um, I went home, and I really didn't accept that advice. I was terribly upset. and uh, But that night I went to my home group, and they prayed for me. They saw my tears, and uh, they were so wonderful and so supportive. And um, I came home after that meeting, and as I came in the door, the phone was ringing. And it was my other daughter to say that her sister had been in touch with her, and she wants to be reconciled to you. I couldn't believe it. And so God answered that prayer even before we had prayed it. What timing. What timing. Amazing timing. (laughs) What turned her mind? Her mind, uh, somehow she heard um, that I had divorced and I think it was a deep desire that she had to come back into the family. She really missed her brothers and sister and, uh, and me and I think it was her deep desire that one day we'd get back together but not with him there. What has God taught you through this whole experience? Oh, so much. Just an amazing amount. I think, firstly, that he will never leave you or forsake you. And there's nothing too hard for him to fix. Um, That he answers prayer in a way that I could never have imagined. Personal prayer. And I think I have learned to trust him with everything. (laughs) Just know that I can trust him. And that is so comforting. I'm kind of lost for words. I think it's it is an amazing story. I think it's I think it's a demonstration of amazing courage, and such an important conversation to have, and such an important book for our world to have to be out there. Thank so you. thank you so much indeed for sharing it with us, and for the rest of the community. Jane Scope, thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this open house podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.